Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to this. It is the Rugby Dungeon. Thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing. Um, I am delighted today to be joined by Tom Wood. Hi, Tom. How are we doing? I am very, very well, thanks. Now, it's not often I immediately warm to someone so much, but we tried to get a hold of you on Monday. We tried to get together last Wednesday. What was the reason we couldn't do it? Uh, I was booking in on a signing up and enrolling on a welding course at a local college. That's that's phenomenal work. Why on earth would you want to be going on a, on a welding course? I mean, I can think of why you would want to, but you tell me why you want to. Um. I'm just very busy in my uh, in my home life. Got lots of hobbies. I do a lot of woodwork and bits and pieces. Anyone that follows me on Instagram will be aware of that. And um, you know, just trying to broaden broaden my skill set. Really, um, I got a big truck. I got a big Toyota Land Cruiser, um, and I like to work on it myself. Um, I do lots of projects. I've kind of had a bit of an unofficial uh, welding course from a friend of mine. <laughs> but just want to get the paperwork and all the official stuff to go with it. Really awesome. So I I have followed you on Instagram. I've seen the woodwork. I've seen the archery. I mean, what is this? Uh, it's almost like primal activities, for want of a better word. Yeah, I don't know. Just gravitate towards them, I guess. Um, I was always like it as a kid. And, um, you know, I, I obviously put a huge emphasis and focus on rugby for a number of years as I was um, as I was coming through the ranks. And, and now I've just got a family and a house and a bit of a workshop and everything on my own. I've just started to dedicate a bit more time to these things. Awesome. T- uh, tell me a bit about your workshop. Uh, it was just garage, basically. Um, so I've got a bit of an outside area where I've got a bit of a, um, I call it the aircraft hangar, but it's basically just a uh, a perspex roof <laughs> with open open walls Yeah. Um, that I can do my chainsaw in. Um, I can set up tools and not worry about them getting wet. I can store some of my t- timber and things under there. Um, and then I've got a garage, which um, which I mean, it started out as a family garage with bikes and uh, and kids stuff and everything else, and now it's just a full time woodworking, welding, archery, gun, rifles, um, you know, workshop. That's awesome. So, what made you think originally? All right, today I'm going to work with some wood. What 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 was the first thing first thing you did? Um, I, well, I was I was always kind of I had a flair for it and an, an enthusiasm for it at school. Um, you know, I did uh, I did D and T, uh, design technology and things at school and. Uh, that was probably when I first got into it properly. I, I think I think I was actually like it from a very early age. As a kid, I was making window boxes for my uh, grandparents. Okay. Um, not very good ones, you know. I was knocking sort of six-inch nails out the other end of bits of bits of timber and leaving stuff lying around and getting in trouble all the time. Um, but um, yeah, just as an adult, um, now I have the means and a, and a bit of a, a bit of space to do it. I've just started to acquire some tools and um, and, and steadily built from there, really. Do you find it? Do you find it quite relaxing? Because I always so I, I've got one. I've got well, I've got numerous we, um, weird hobbies. But one of the things that I, I love doing, for whatever reason it is, is polishing shoes. Not because I like polishing shoes, just because it's a task which you can focus on solely for that hour or so. Yeah, I think um, I think that's the case with a lot of stuff I do, whether it's fishing, 
shooting, archery, um, woodworking, welding, my truck, off-roading. It's just time to be uh, in your own space. Yeah. Um, and to whether it's whether it's rugby or family or anything else that could be getting the better of you, it's just a, a bit of time to be in your own world for a little bit and you can't really focus on anything else when you're shooting a rifle or when you're when you've got power tools written in the, in the <laughs> workshop and, and those things just kind of concentrate the mind and uh, just leave some of the baggage behind, I guess. Do you know what? I think that's the key word there, or the key phrase, I should say, concentrating the mind, because I, I, I'm one of those people that can't actually switch off. I, I don't like the idea of going away to relax or chilling out, but actually you do get that sort of um, that relaxing feel when you are doing something, you know, just one thing, whether that be know, do, doing jujitsu for, for for half an hour or you know cooking for a few hours, something which you've got to focus on. Yeah, hundred percent. It's uh, it's difficult for your mind to wander when you're being choked out or uh, in an armbar or something in jujitsu. <laughs> yeah. uh, I actually did a lot of jujitsu as a kid. I'm uh, I'm black belt in jujitsu. No, really. Yeah, well, I, I did Japanese jujitsu and karate as a kid till about age thirteen, fourteen, I think. Um, and I, I'm dead keen to take it back up. It's just juggling it with rugby and making good decisions each week, depending on how your body's feeling and everything else. But um, I'd definitely like to get back into some martial arts yeah. soon, if not, if not when I retire. Yeah, well, I actually took my rugby team uh, uh, up to a jiu-jitsu gym in Oldham for a bit of team bonding. I was amazed how rubbish that... The- um, how rubbish that they all were. I thought it'd actually translate quite quickly from rugby into grappling, but it's actually it's actually completely different. Yeah, it's very different. Um, and and rugby players are, are often what we call compensators. So they've got a lot of injuries, a um, lot of knocks and niggles, and they perhaps don't work on their flexibility. They they brute strength things. Um, you know, uh, it, it comes down a lot with rugby players to just determination and a will to to push harder than the opposite. Whereas jiu-jitsu is very technical, um, and if, if you're not technically minded, if you've not practiced those things, um, you know you can you can be undone very quickly. Mm. So, how much um, how much fishing is there to do around uh, around Northampton then? Um, a surprising amount, to be honest. Yeah, there's quite a lot. I mean, to, to be fair, I'm um, I'm not really a snob with it. I like all, all all kinds of fishing. It could be fly fishing for trout on a reservoir, or or proper fly fishing for salmon on the river. Uh, could be lure fishing for predators, sea fishing, uh, course fishing down the river, just course fishing for chub and roach. I'm, I live next to the river then, so um, you know, just I just take the kids wandering off down there and uh, whatever it might be, just um, just give it a crack. Do you think you'd be doing all these things if you didn't play rugby? I mean, what what I mean by that is, you know, it is, uh, you know, you've taken on a, uh, a lot of interesting hobbies here. Do you think it's the rugby that allows you to do this? And, do you th- and also, do you think you'd be as curious if you weren't if you weren't playing? I think I would. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, rugby. Um, I guess twofold. One, one, the lifestyle it, it does give you opportunity because your work hours are very different to, to most. Mm. Um, it actually complements it in a lot of ways because I find the more rounded a person you are, the better kind of rugby player you are, and everything as well. And staying active in your spare time. A lot of people, a lot of rugby players, go home and play PlayStation or whatever, or watch Netflix and. You know, I'm always busy, always active, and I find that that's kind of an active recovery. Yeah, you do have to walk a you know a pretty thin line and, and, and be careful that you don't overtip the balance and exhaust yourself doing these kind of things. But you know, generally being busy on your day off or on a Sunday post match helps you recover and get back into get back up and moving quickly. Yeah, that's a that's a really really good point actually. Um, I've also got got to say, uh, I'm now amazed by the prevalence of 
PlayStation players among the ranks of rugby players. It, it seems to be their num- their number one hobby for about, I would say, 80% of them, though. Yeah, probably, yeah. Especially young kids coming through and, uh, you know, uh, if they've come from, from school straight into academies and things like that. Uh, to be honest, I'm not I'm not knocking it. I played a fair bit of PlayStation in my day and, uh, and my boy plays now and I have, every now and then I get on there with him as well. But, um, you know, I, I don't I don't really have that much time for it these days. Um, yeah, I'm always, I'm always busy doing something a bit more practical. Are you ever trying to get any of the other lads into uh, archery or whatever else, it, whatever else it may be? Um, I think a few of the lads have got a keen interest as well. Alex Waller, particularly on the woodwork. There's a few of us that are doing this welding course together. Oh, go on then. Uh, so uh, Paul Hill, oh, yeah. uh, I think I think is inclined to do it. Um, Alex Waller, Tamana Harrison, Ben Franks is a couple of the Islanders. <laughs> uh, Ken PC and uh, Campisi Mafu is now at Leicester. I think I think there's a few guys joining up. That's going to uh, be one hell of a welding course. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, I think everyone just wants some. Um, Wants wants to give himself some options after rugby. Wants to uh, develop practical skills and be, you know, just be capable of uh, of doing these things. Really, um, just just trying things out while we've got the opportunity to. You know, if I was a player in Northampton, I think the one thing I would learn to do is probably is probably become a cobbler. Literally become a cobbler. Well, we've had a few tours around the around the shops, uh, around the factory. Sorry, and it's a it's, it's an interesting place. I'm I'm actually dead keen on all that kind of stuff. I uh, I love learning about anything like that, uh, and I don't like the idea of not being able to do something. So if um, whether it whether it's cobbling shoes, woodwork, welding, whatever else, if um, you know if something goes wrong in that in my house, I, I generally try to fix it, um, and I don't like the idea that uh, of having to call a professional in. Um, so you know, cobbling is another thing. Um, that yeah is uh, is massive in in the town of Northampton and, yeah. and it, an interesting topic that's kind of a bit of a lost art really. Oh, completely. It it is nicer because I mean there are so many uh, brands now rebasing themselves in Northampton and using the old skills. Yeah, I, th- I think um, it's, it's coming back around kind of full circle now. Um, I think that's the case with a lot of things is uh, where everything went kind of mass produced for a while and and was done in in bulk on the cheap. Um, People are start. People are in a fortunate position to to be able to have the luxury, and now focusing more on the bespoke, the custom made, the handmade, um, and things done the old way a little bit, and uh, it's, it's kind of come full circle in that sense. Yeah, as you think, it's it's the beauty of knowing that something's gone through a process. Yeah, yeah, and that it's not just like every other one that's come off the off the production line or whatever. It's not just uh, been churned out, you know, by a machine, a CNC machine or whatever, and or plastic molding, and it's. You know, you know, it's been made of quality with uh, with, with someone's own hands. Um, I think there's definitely something to be said for that. Yeah. Uh, can I, I'm just going to take you off topic a second because you mentioned fishing. Mentioned, uh, uh, you mentioned uh, actually, did you mention shooting or did you mention hunting? Shooting, yeah, I, I, hunting as well. Yeah, a bit of everything. Yeah, shooting, um, I shoot rifles. I shoot my my archery, uh, my bow and arrow and stuff. I do do a bit of everything. Now, did you see? a Twitter post the other day and I might get you into some trouble here I might not it was a hockey player that shot a bear and it seems to have made all the all the social media rounds now I only really follow rug, uh, rugby accounts on Twitter so it obviously made made, made the rounds there too uh, yeah I did see the post and I saw Jamal's um, Jamal Ford Robinson um, posted it a, a kind of counter post I also interacted with a few people on it um, it's a very difficult subject um, to do justice to, particularly on Twitter. Uh, yes, it is. You know, it's, a, it's a very complex issue, and it's a very emotional and emotive issue that, that gets people very upset at times. Um, it, I guess my 
my thoughts on it are that um, social media is probably not the place or Twitter's not the place to discuss it really because it's so nuanced and complex it's difficult to to really get your point across without it becoming abusive and aggressive and yeah uh, and and very sort of identity politics in terms of well my group think this and I'm just going to stick with them no matter what um, pe- people are very uh, I guess um, reluctant to it to accept or, or to have an open mind and accept counter arguments yeah that's 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 a really good point actually regard um uh, regarding the social media just to fill in the listeners to what we're actually talking about i think this guy was a professional ice hockey player and he'd shot a bear somewhere now what he's going to do with that bear i have no i have no idea why he shot the bear i assume he i assume he was stalking but the but the social media interactions were up, were were were, up, were absolutely fascinating, and yeah, yeah. I, I think well, the important thing is I don't think anyone would actually talk to someone else like that in person. No, that's one thing is when he's on the other side of the world and you've got no idea who he is and you don't have to interact face to face, you don't have to have, pick up social cues or or anything like that. It's easy to just spout hate, I suppose, for want of a better word, but just abuse really from a distance with no repercussions. Um, and I actually think most people are ignorant. I think it's. I think it is ignorant to to do so from here. Yeah. When you, I mean, most people have never seen a bear in real life. Most people have never seen. A They're not wild, cuddly. Really. Um, if you don't interact with them on a daily basis, if you're not Alaska or Canada or you know wherever they might, you know wherever the hunt took place, um, it, it's fairly naive and ignorant to 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 act like you know it all from here. Um, Especially if you're a meat eater. Um, yes, quite. Um, so there's there's some hypo- hypocrisy there as well. Yeah, so I'm sort of torn on it. I, I mean, I would have a problem killing something because I've never done it. But mind mind you, I thought... But do you eat meat? Oh, no, no. I would do it. i just not comfortable with, comfortable with doing it. And I also appreciate that you have to do it if you're... You know, if you're not willing to do it, you are a complete a complete hypocrite. And I think yeah. once you once you've done once you've done it once, it gets easier and easier and easier. I think I think one of the things is well, it, easier to some extent. I don't think it should ever be easy, and I don't think it should ever be without. It's a it's a real dichotomy, really, is that you you have all these emotions when you're involved with killing an animal, especially when it's for food. Yeah, because you could because you have to put an awful lot of preparation into it. You have to put some time into stalking, pulling the triggers actually the simplest bit or the quickest bit that's all over very quickly um but you know you have to rationalize it in your own mind um you have to go through a huge amount of work to to hunt stalk track shoot skin butcher uh gut prepare um i'll tell you what one one thing for for sure is when you when you do kill a deer or an animal you you don't waste any of the meat yeah i bet you've been through that whole process and you knew what it took and you were there at the moment that it expired and you you kind of you felt all those emotions there's a sense of relief when you do when you do a good job of it yeah. um because you know it's a it's a big build-up to the to the moment and you feel a lot of pressure to do to do a good job so when you do a good job you feel that sense of kind of relief uh, and that's often what you see in these pictures when people call them trophy hunting and everything else when when they do a kind of celebratory picture yes um and, and post it on social media people think it's um it's an egotistical thing. It's a look how good I am because I shot this great big animal and this majestic beast and I'm better than it. Or, you know, it's, it's, it's that kind of thing that upsets people the most, I think. 
Um, and I guess the only the only way I can relate to that is a huge amount of work went into it, and it's a kind of sense of relief and achievement that it that it went as well as it could do. Yeah, I mean, just to clarify what I was kind of trying to say, I I guess I see it kind of like doing a parachute jump. I'd love to be able to do it, but I'd be very scared leading up to doing it. Yeah, and I think I think you should be. I think that's right. I think it's only right that you you question the ethics of it. You you have to rationalise it in your own mind. You have to think of the morality, and it's an ongoing thing as well. Some very well known, uh, high profile celebrity hunters. Um, I, I listened to a couple of podcasts. One in particular with Steve Ranella called oh, Meat yeah. Have you heard of that? Yeah, yeah. Um, and and he's a he's a very kind of intelligent, articulate um, hunter. And, and he rationalises it, and it's, it's fascinating listening to the way he does it. But he, he's obviously killed hundreds, if not thousands, of animals in his time. But he's had occasions where, for whatever reason, he's had the perfect opportunity to shoot exactly what he's been stalking and hunting. And for whatever reason, in his own mind, he's decided not to on the day. Uh, and he's, you know, he's put his rifle down and not pulled the trigger for whatever reason. And it, it's that kind of emotion and and... He just didn't want to do it on the day for whatever reason. That doesn't mean he's never going to do it again. It's just it got to him on the day. Yeah, uh, there was some, some level of emotion that was going through it. So it is a very complex issue. And um, I think what doesn't help is when people say things like, "Oh, I'll give the bear the gun," or "I hope the lion." <laughs> yeah, it's completely completely yeah. naive. Or um, something like, uh, oh, just just expletives and abuse, basically. Um, Without any real understanding, um, and and I listen to these podcasts, so I have a level of understanding. But I can only I can only go on what I what I hear from them and regurgitate some of that stuff, really, because I'm I'm not got boots on the ground out in Canada or out in uh, Alaska or any of these places where these big hunts go on in Africa and what have you. So, um, I, I just think the conversation needs some balance. Yeah, and I think the thing which people don't usually get as well is the amount of work that you know the hunting community or people who are invested in. You know, outdoor out, outdoor lifestyles actually contributes to well to basically the outdoor world, um, the conservation aspect. The, you know, conservation. No, no, I don't. You know, nobody cares more. Actually, no. I think um, I think that's another subject that's kind of misunderstood, and it definitely rattles the kind of anti-hunter uh, brigade because um, what they see is a picture like. Uh, I think it's Tim. Po- is his name Tim? Yeah, I can't remember what his surname is, but um, yeah. I think he. Po- they see a picture like that, and then they they respond by saying he's not doing it for conservation. He's got no interest in conservation. He's got no interest in the habitat or the wildlife or anything like that. He's simply posting a glorified picture of his own egotistical, you know, and and they've got a point. Um, they have got a point. But the conservation element is not on a personal level for him necessarily. I don't necessarily think that's relevant. I think it's a wider issue of the the local authority, the state, the government, whatever it is that's overseeing the wildlife, uh, hunting, fishing, wildlife and game bureaus or whatever it is over there. Um, they do the numbers. They do the head counts. They figure out what the carrying capacity of the land is. They understand how many are there the predator-prey balance, all those kind of things. And I guess I have to trust them on those things. And they decide whether to issue tags, because in America and Canada, you have a tag system. That's right. You've got to buy, do you have to buy them? Yeah, you have to yeah. buy them. Um, sometimes you have to pay a fortune um, just to go into the lottery, so you're not guaranteed. Um, so you, 
I think it's different for different species in different states. I don't know. I don't know the exact details, but I understand that you basically for something like a bear or a moose or an elk, you go into a lottery and only so many tags are issued based on the carrying capacity of the land, the, the health of the local herds. Um, you know what what the um, what the right thing to do in terms of conservation and, and preservation and habitat maintenance and all the rest of it is. It's got to be economically sound. So that money all goes back into the pot to to preserve the local the local habitats and what have you now, so you you basically go into it you're not sure if you're going to get one if you're lucky enough to get one it's not it's not like a pheasant hunt over here where you book in a day you go for a drive to a local estate you get fed and looked after and then you shoot you know 200 300 birds a day you get your brace of birds to leave with it's not it's not like that you basically take two weeks off work if you get if you draw an elk or a moose tag or a bear tag in alaska you have to take a couple of weeks off work to go up into the hills, um, into the middle of nowhere to camp self-sufficient on your own for for weeks in order to with, with no guarantee of success. Now, and if you are successful, you have to pack a 500 pound bear out of there. <laughs> yeah, that's a good it's, point. Actually. It's illegal not to. I, I understand in most states, if not all of them, that if you shoot a bear and were to only take the head as a trophy, as you know, so a so-called trophy hunter, uh-huh. uh, that's that's illegal and you would you know you'd lose your rights and potentially do prison time i think for that kind of thing bloody hell so after telling me all of that there's no way you've not planned to buy a tag at some point somewhere (laughs) um the tag system doesn't operate in the uk i guess it just comes down to um having opportunity uh the right friends landowners farmers um that kind of stuff you can go up into scotland and stalk red deer or down south um Locally here in Northampton, you've got muntjac and roe deer and the occasional fallow. Wow. Uh, but um, I've, I've spent a little bit of time in Denver out in uh, World Cup camp and uh, Sac- uh, England Saxons. And uh, so I went down the Colorado River and did some fishing and things. Um, but it's not practical whilst you're away on a rugby trip to go go into the mountains and hunt an elk. <laughs> I, I, I do love the idea that on your day off you went um, potentially hunting and definitely um, and definitely fishing. Oh yeah, definitely went fishing. That was a bit more practical. But uh, drawing an elk tag, like I say, <laughs> I think if you were, I think if you were, I don't think, I'm not sure exactly how it works, but I think it comes down to if you're a resident. So if you're a resident in Alaska, you have a lot more rights to the to the local game and things like that than you. So so someone from down in the south can't just pay a fortune and say, I want to. Money can't buy you it basically. It doesn't. You you can't. The richest man in the world can't just turn up and say, "I want to shoot a trophy elk." Wow! Uh, you have to go through the process and get get drawn a tag the way everybody else does. Um, now, so. now, I I think another angle of this whole of this whole debate, and it kind of leads it sort of leads into rugby a tiny bit, is just changing. You know, is the changing of the culture. I mean, we live in such a sanitized world now that anything which is kind of macho or you know, aggressive, violent, uh, is automatically seen as bad. I actually see that hunting is um, is kind of stained, stained with that because whichever way you look at it, it is it is very violent. It's you know, it's one of the most violent things things that things that that you can do, I guess, and that's automatically associated with being wrong. Yeah, I think you're probably right. Yeah, I think, um, and I think you see a lot of people resisting that in the rugby world when we when we change the rules when we try and protect people for. Uh, whether it's tackle heights and concussion or, you know, rucking rules and stamping, uh, scrum engagements, anything like that. Um, 
the, the, the knee-jerk reaction from the rugby community is the, the, the game's gone soft. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a strange one. It's a very difficult one to get your head around, really. Yeah, uh, it is. I, I'm, I'm very conflicted on it, whether it's rugby and concussion or whether it's, uh, whether it's hunting, um, things like that. Um, it's, a, it's a real challenging, complex issue uh, that, that I actually have. Um, you know, I, I go from one, way, one side to the other on it quite regularly. I'm, now, I'm never quite sure where I stand on it, to be honest. Have you ever suffered from con- concussion, Tom? Not not a really significant one. I've had plenty of bangs on the head. Um, I've had um, I've never been completely out cold or you know long term concussion. I've had uh, I've had minor concussion where I've had to go through the protocols of returning to play. Yeah. One of those protocols is what they call a cog sport, which is um it's a sit at a laptop mm-hmm. and you do a a series of cognitive tests that involve playing cards. And basically, you have to respond and hit the keys when one turns over, whether it's red or black, whether it's uh, whether you've seen the card before, all this kind of kind of stuff. And you, you set a baseline when you're fit and healthy in preseason. Mm-hmm. And if you get a knock on the head, you have to get within a certain percentage of your baseline before oh, they'll really? like to play again. And I had all sorts of trouble trying to pass that mid-season after uh, after having a bit of a bang on the head one time. Is that but, right? Uh, I didn't. I, I felt symptom free. I felt absolutely fine. I'd uh, I'd done all the other tests, like going for a run, and uh, yeah. So you have basically a twenty four hour. It's a six day protocol, and you have a different test every twenty four hours. And if you fail one, you have to wait a full twenty four hours before you can redo it. So basically, it's designed that if you play on a Saturday, get a concussion, and are absolutely symptom free for the whole week, you can play the following week if you pass all these tests. But if you have any form of symptoms or any uh, any failure in one of those tests, you're basically ruled out. Interesting, yeah. So, yeah, I, I mean, the big problem that I have with it isn't. Uh, it's certainly not the in, the intent behind all of the changes, but it's it's kind of like it's the, it's the science of concussion first and foremost. We don't know how it affects different people in different ways. I mean, the knocks that you've had could well knock out another person, and but we don't. We simply don't know how it affects one person. One person to the next and, and we also know the long-term effects so like what what i cope with reasonably well at the time yeah. could you know in 20 30 years could cause all sorts of problems um with, that we see with like the cte and the, and the concussion film things in america and american football um yeah i mean i think the longer term things are actually far more scary than 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 the, yeah. the short term things but actually i also i'm not convinced going forward that any kind of collision sport or even contact sport is going to be compatible with uh, concussion safeguarding. I just don't. I, I think we're going to have to make a decision at some point. You know what risk is acceptable, and then go along with that. Yeah, exactly. It's what's acceptable risk, and it's also education so people know what they're getting into. Yeah. Um, but at the end, end of the day, like if you feel like you've been misled or duped into doing something without a full understanding of what's being asked and then you suffer a major concussion or uh, you have long-term ill health effects down the line then obviously that's that's grounds for kind of um legal action and mm. i think that's what the unions are scared to death of and i think that's what some of this is oh, what's, what's provoked some of this particularly with what's happened in american football and everyone's scared to death that something something goes horribly wrong and a big lawsuit comes the union's way and uh, and that's what's driving a lot of this, I think. Yeah, yeah, I, I completely agree with the, with the lawsuit point of view. The unions have to be seen to be doing something. Uh, I mean, I think the interesting one is, 
you know, no one is saying to rugby players, uh, either in the grassroots game where I am or in the professional level where you are, this is completely safe. And I think if the message from rugby as a whole is this is completely safe and it's not completely safe, then we've got a problem. But to a certain degree, we knew it wasn't completely safe when we started, well, when we started playing. It's part of what draws people to it. It's part of what draws people to play it. It's what draws people to watch it. It's what it's gladiatorial uh, or whatever you call it. It's um, you know, it's uh, it is a high octane collision sport where there's there is risk of personal injury. Yeah. Um, in fact, the object of the game is not not to deliberately injure somebody, but it's certainly to physically impose yourself on the opposition and to and to one up the opposition. Um, Oh. So I don't know why we're pretending otherwise, really, at times. Now, there does have to be concussion education. I do want further research, and I do understand the logic, and the union does need to protect itself against any potential potential lawsuit. I don't I don't begrudge them that. Yeah. Um, but there is no way that we make rugby safe, entirely safe and risk-free, and have the same product at the end of the day. It would be a completely different product if we, if we do that. So... Um, yeah. I'm glad I got the I got the chance to grow up playing the game as it as it was. Yeah, yeah. And I'm, and I'm, so, I'm uh, glad I'll be out before too long. <laughs> yeah, well, going back to the gladiatorial thing, it's almost like the writing's been on the wall for some while now because there is an element of rugby. There's no denying it, and it is intimidation. I think the lower down the leagues you go, the more you try and get away with that. And now, if you look at the public persona of rugby and how the unions want to push it, it's very much about look at the skills, you know, look at these, you know, look at the great tries. But actually, the conversations which happen amongst players, I would say, and please correct me if I'm wrong, the more fun things are, you know, what uh, what about what, uh, what about when I hammered him? Or what about when we did that guy in the scrum? Or, you know, what about when uh, such and such shit himself? That kind of thing. That, that's actually more the enjoyment from the player's side, I would say. Um, I, th- I think... I wouldn't necessarily say more. It's across the board, really, and it's like I, I equate it to like a game of top trumps. Every every or different things beat different things on the day. Uh, you can't have uh, a blueprint or a winning formula. You know, um, sometimes it will be your speed and skill up against a bigger man. Sometimes it will be the bigger team that uh, the, the the play the power game that get the upper hand on the day. The weather plays it plays a big factor. Um, some players, all they care about is the killer pass or you know the fancy bit of skill. They don't want to. They don't want anything to do with the contact and the collision. They want to do everything they can to avoid that. Some people, all they want to do is the big hit. Um, yeah. You know, it's um, it's it's it really is a sport for everybody, and it's about finding how to impose your strengths, would be it skill or speed or or actual physical strength related, and how how to impose them, and then how to how to protect and hide any weaknesses you've got. Um, and that's part of the joy of it. There isn't. A, otherwise, we'd all be, uh, you know, robots. Um, we, we'd all be just car, carbon copies of each other, trying to trying to be the biggest or the fittest or the strongest. But you can't be any one of those things. Mm. Um, you have to be a bit of everything. Yeah, it's finding that balance. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, don't, I think the game in general, um, they're trying to make it. Because of professionalism, because they want money coming in through the gates, and they want uh, you know more ticket sales, more commercial uh, profitability, and everything else, They're just trying to make it more accessible to to more people. Um, so to do that, you have to make it slightly less risky. Um, you have to make it faster and more and less 
niche and uh, I guess um, oh, what's the right word? Like, well, I guess just accessible. I mean, just people need to need need, need to understand it and, and appreciate it. Yeah, so it's it's all like the real old school, not old school, but the rules um, that just you know are, are too hard to comprehend for people that have spent their life watching football or something that's a little bit more open and obvious. You know, rooks and scrums. And, you, 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 what I'm trying to get at is, uh, you know, you, 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 your occasional fan turning up to watch a game that sees five reset scrums on the bounce just thinks, what am I watching? This is the most boring <laughs> thing I've ever seen. But to your, to your real hardcore rugby fan, um, he might be getting into the details of who's, who's collapsing where and who's got the upper hand on who. And, you know, there might be an extra front row in the, in the crowd that's watching thinking that's the best thing ever. Yeah, uh, I appreciate that. Or, or so, or even even just a pushover, a pushover try and a maul or a scrum, you know, is uh, is not for to everyone's taste. But that's why I think rugby's got has got something for everybody as a player and also as a spectator. Um, you know, there's, there's cries to make rugby a, a summer sport, and if you did that, there'd be a whole host more tries. There'd be a lot more running rugby. There'd be a lot more flair, but mm. it wouldn't rugby union the way we we know it. Yeah. Um, because your whole makeup of your team would change. You wouldn't pick your big, heavy, tight head props. You wouldn't pick your, you know, your ballast and your brawlers and all those kind of things. You just end up picking mo- more mobile, athletic, athletic players. Um, so you'd end up with rugby union essentially, uh, rugby, rugby league, league, sorry, essentially. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, you're not wrong there. And and also, ironically, you'd probably increase the amount of very, very big collisions too. Yeah, probably. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's one of the reasons the collisions are are increasing. It's not it's not the size of the individual collision; it's the attrition rate and the the, the constant nature of them. So the game's changed dramatically since I started playing. Even and I, you know, ten years ago, the um, there was always a big player in every team. There was always, even in, at schoolboy level, there was always the one big guy. There was always a one fast guy. But now across the board, everybody's big. Everybody's they fast. Are. Everybody can. Everyone's fit enough with full-time training regimes, strength and conditioning regimes, to do it over and over for eighty minutes. So it basically just sucks all the all the oxygen and all the space off the pitch, and every collision you have is into a brick wall. Yeah. Uh, so you end up having sixty, seventy of those a game, and then to be prepared for that, you have to do it all week in training as well. So um, you know when they're talking about these CTE and concussion and everything else. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, yeah. I, my, I, I can't say, not a doctor, and the studies probably haven't been done, but I'll be surprised if it's the big one-off collisions that cause the biggest problems. I'd be, I would imagine it's just the continuous rate of impacts and collisions and whiplash effect and just uh, just bangs uh, that you get in training and, and, and repetitively in games as well. The innocuous ones, the ones that you don't even notice, um, you know, just just the accumulation of that is probably one of the one of the biggest problems. Yeah, it's so hard to say. I think at some point we're going to have to say the professional game is going to look a lot different to the amateur game because in my view, and this is a very, very kind of finger-in-the-air view, the the pro, the pro game may well be suffering from some serious con- concussion stuff. But the further down you go, we can't really regulate the amateur game to the same standards we can of the pro game, like we can't have a pitch side doctor, you know, you can't leave it up to coaches to do concussion 
training and protocol. And if it's half as serious as we think it is, we shouldn't be leaving it to amateur coaches to do concussion protocols to let players know when they can, can, and, can and can't come back. So, you know, it, it, again, there's going to have to be a huge difference between how we administer this up the leagues and how we do it, you know, down at like level eight or level seven. Yeah, it'd be a logistical nightmare, I reckon. We have iPads and a designated physio on the side of the pitch with a live feed on an like on an iPad that they can review and play in slow motion and you know really get to the bottom of whether someone's concussed or not, whether they've shown any symptoms. And and I can tell you, doctors, medics, physios are scared to death of making a mistake of with all the controversy that happened with George North and things like that. You know, they're always going to err on the side of caution these days. Um, if there's any doubt, players off. Um, you know, any symptoms shown, that's it. Call will be made. And like you say, how do you how do you implement that at the lower levels? I have no idea. I mean, I I, I certainly uh, I certainly couldn't do it, and I'm pretty sure the other coach in my team probably couldn't do it. So I've got no idea. So I don't know what that looks like, other than um, to just make it as clear as possible to say that you know there are clearly risks. I mean. What are we going to do? Are we going to do away with rugby altogether? If it is proven that, um, you know, repeated head head collisions, not even head collisions, just the whiplash effect you get from holding a tackle bag and being hit hard. Yeah. Um, you know, that's some of the... I, I have felt concussed on the back of that without ever being hit in the head. You know, you try holding a bag for Courtney Laws for 15 shots, <laughs> left and right shoulder. Um, honestly, it is brutal and you can feel the you know, your head rat, your brain rattling around in your head. Um, and I don't know what the answer is. Um, I do it willingly. Um, and I guess I have to accept any, any repercussions, um, down the line. But, uh, you know, I've always wanted to be a rugby player. I've enjoyed every minute of it and, uh, and representing my country and Northampton Saints has, has been an absolute honor. So, um, would I give it all up? I don't know. I don't think I ever, not a chance. No, and I think that, that, that's the other thing. If all the evidence was laid on the table, and I suspect what they're saying is probably right, I'd still go and play it. And I think many people that do play it would also still go and play it. Because, you know, despite all the new evidence co- coming out, it's, you know, like I say, the pro game is, is slightly different. The amateur game will get affected, but we have literally hundreds of years of evidence for for the amateur game. And we still have rugby clubs full of people who aren't, you know, who haven't got severe... Bri- severe brain trauma but I do also take the point that the pro game is just you know different you know it's just a different type of beast than it was even 10 years ago yeah 100% uh, uh, so I've just noted something down here uh, on, um, on my iPad I've just written it down when we were talking before about um, you know uh, being strongest biggest uh, you said something re- re- really interesting you said uh, and also try, try and, trying to hide your weaknesses Um I, do you, do you perceive yourself to have many weaknesses as 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 a rugby player? And I suppose getting straight straight to the point is, you know, what would you be hiding? Um, I, I'm generally pretty good all round. I don't have, um, you know, the size and strength or of, of like a Billy and a Polar, um, but I'm I'm pretty pretty competent. Um, you know, I'm not the tallest, but I'm quite tall for a back rower in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess some of my biggest strengths are, are kind of my engine, my work, uh, my work rate. But the the biggest weakness I think I've got in my game is is acceleration and turn of speed. Ah. So, um, 
you know, I, it's it's a frustration of mine. It's it's something that's very difficult to improve significantly. Yeah. Um, you know, I can I can work hard for long periods of time, but having that real acceleration um, is is certainly probably one of my biggest work ons and, and and weaknesses. And that and you can get exposed with that. That's really interesting. Be careful. Um, and I tend to get stronger as a game goes on because everybody's acceleration and everybody's it becomes a, a level a level playing field the longer the game goes on. Yeah. Um, that my engine. Uh, brings me up into the competition whereas you know in the opening exchanges the bigger more powerful the more explosive people you know are fresh and getting themselves into the game that way but as they tire and as that kind of explosive fast twitch fighters start to wane that's when uh, that's when i that that I'm more comfortable that's really interesting. I would never have noticed that about your game. How common are very explosive fast forwards? Because I, I, I don't actually think of that uh, as a forward quality. Um, you'd be amazed. Uh, I'd say Alex Waller, um, Kieran Brooks, working with him, uh, some of the most explosive, powerful Is people that right? imaginable. Yeah. yeah, Alex Waller can probably jump higher than me. Um, <laughs> uh, he's probably... He's probably significantly faster than me over over ten, twenty, thirty yards. Yeah. Um, same with Kieran Brooks, uh, Aaron Painter at the at the club these days. He weighs one hundred and thirty kilos plus, I think. Yeah, and over ten or fifteen, twenty meters, you would you wouldn't believe how fast he is. Um, and then obviously you've got the outside backs and the actual you know really dynamic players. Uh, you know, you like Sokovas Reinach at, at, at Saints. Um, you know, absolute dynamite. Oh. Um, in terms in terms of vertical jump, speed off the mark, acceleration, Tom Collins. Uh, but you'd expect it from those guys, I guess. Yeah. Um, but some some of the forward back row forwards, Tamana Harrison, incredibly explosive, Mitch Eady, um, uh, Jamie Gibson. So people often equate me and Jamie as as similar players because we're both quite gangly, uh, both line out forwards. Yeah. Um, generally both have good work rates but athletically we're very Lo- different and also loads and loads of hobbies <laughs> yeah yeah exactly but but athletically in terms of um you know kpis or whatever you you, you would call them in, in the business world we're, we're very different um you know he's far more fast twitch explosive speed off the mark um acceleration uh you know 10 20 30 40 meter speed whereas i'm very much you know volume of work meters covered um that kind of more of an endurance athlete. I see. And, and what sort of tests are they performing in in the club to measure these things? Oh, in the in the preseason, we had a full NFL combine. Did you? Uh, yeah. So uh, yeah, it was vertical jumps, uh, med ball throws, the um, the little figure eight shuttle run tests that they do. Yeah. Um, they do the ten meter and I think I think it was ten and twenty meter dash. Yeah. Uh, Yep, there's this fitness test with, uh, they call them Broncos, or like the mass MAS test, the uh, multiple anaerobic shuffle shuttles, where you do the, uh, it's basically 20 metres, 40 metres, 60 metres and back, yeah. five times continuous for time. Um, there's all sorts of tests they do, and, uh, you know, they've got uh, a leaderboard. and. Um, I, I can only imagine how competitive that, that gets. Yeah, it's awesome. It is good fun. Um, we've all got mini teams as well, so... Um, you know, we've got uh, the, the the squad is broken up into four teams with four captains, and uh, 
whenever there's something like that to be done, little activities, little challenges and things, we, we split up into them and, uh, and compete with each other just to add an extra, an extra level of comp- competition. Um, I, this sounds basic though. What is the med ball throw? Is that basically to, you know, to replace? Yeah. It's not a standardized test. It's, yeah. just, it's just something that we did this year in preseason. Um, and it was, um, it was basically throw a, a big medicine ball as far as you can. I can't remember the weight of it. Uh, and I think you could pretty much do it any means necessary. You just couldn't go over the fault line. Oh, so with you. Most people were whipping it over their head like a, um, what would you call it? You've seen them throwing the barrels in the strong Oh, line. yeah, yeah. So kind of yeah. behind them. Yeah. That's, that, that's yeah. pretty smart, actually. Some people were trying to shot put it and things, but just, uh, or rugby <laughs> pass it as far as I can. Yeah. The uh, winning formula was uh, hoik it over your, over your head. And who won? Um, I think Heinrich Brousseau got some ridiculous. He found a loophole. He managed to hold rather than, you know, the medicine balls are quite big. So like an Atlas stone, you'd hold it in your hot, like bear hug it. Yeah. He managed to get hold of one of the tags or one of the straps that were holding it together. So he managed to have it in his grip rather than in his palms, if you know what I mean. Yeah. That makes sense. And it just gave him that little bit more leverage and, and he absolutely hoid it about. And Thirty meters, I think it's ridiculous. That's pretty good, actually. In fact, that's that's really good. Yeah, I mean, obviously, likes of Haskell, Courtney Dawes, um, some of the props and that they were all very good. Um, yeah. God, yeah, you've got yourself, you've got Jamie Gibson. You just mentioned you've got Brousseau, you've got Haskell. I, was, I, I wasn't competing because I was injured. I'm I'm only just returning from injury now, so I've had a full summer. Yeah, you've uh, got a groin injury, right? Yeah, uh, groin perhaps doesn't explain it very well. It's um, everyone kind of calls it a groin injury, but it's um, it's basically my pelvis. Okay. Um, yeah, like right down the middle of your pelvis, you have a, a tight muscular seam, and mine shifted or strained or something. Um, and uh, I don't know how you'd best describe it. Basically, give my pelvis a good shunt, and uh, in a rotation on the edge of a mall, I, I was giving it everything to push in one direction, and then someone broke out, and I had to rotate quickly to make a tackle. Okay. And some, something shifted, and on and like afterwards, I couldn't barely lift my knees. Jeez. So, um, yeah, I, I had a bit of a long summer. Been um, been a slow, frustrating summer of um, painstaking rehabilitation, and and actually. All the things we spoke about at the start, which is like all the training I like doing, all the hobbies that I've got, just had to go on hold really for a, for a number of weeks, months, just to give it every chance it could to rest and then uh, just meticulous rehab. And I owe a huge amount to Lee Daggett at the club, who's one of our physios, and, and Eamon Highland, who's a S&C coach that's in charge of the long-term rehabbers. Yeah. Um, they've invested a huge amount of time into me. And, uh, you know, I owe them a huge thanks because this has been... Um, yeah, it was potentially, you know, career-ending, really. Crikey. Um, I mean, so... Hang on. You couldn't stand up. Like, it was so weird. So you were on the edge of a, a mall, is that is that right? Yeah, yeah. So I was on the infield side of a mall, trying yeah. to stop the mall from coming infield. So I was giving it everything I could to push it back towards the touchline. Oh, you were defensive. You are doing this defensively, defensive yes? Mall, yeah. yeah, defensively mauling. Um, so I'm basically wedged in there trying to stop it from coming infield uh, and rotating on, on me. Um, and then the mall kind of disintegrated a little bit and somebody broke through the middle of it. And I had to quickly go from that long position of, of like feet wedged in the ground, almost scrummaging to push to rotate and make a tackle. And I, I honestly, I didn't feel like a pop or a, a tear or anything like that. When I got up off the ground, I couldn't pick my knees up. Wow. Wow. Um, so, so I mean, I assume that you were carried off then. 
Uh, no, not not carried off. I was I was physically on my feet, um, but I was uh, I was unable to to run. Oh, I'm with you. I'm with you. Stride or do anything. Um, and then it was really weird because I I had no real clear diagnosis early on. We went to see multiple specialists and had scans and all sorts of things, and we were scratching our heads a little bit. And we kept putting kind of potential dates for me to return to play. So this is back in April, May that I might play back end of last season. Um, and then each one was a false horizon. We got close and I tried to run and just couldn't. Um, then every now and then, um, sometimes it was in response to training, but on a couple of occasions, it was absolutely out of the blue. No, no idea of why it happened. Almost, um, as if I'd had too much rest. I woke up in the morning and, and couldn't stand up. Um, I could barely lift my knees to swing myself out of bed. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com slash people today. Uh, couldn't put any weight on my feet. Um, and it, I, it, it went fairly quickly. So that didn't last. It was only sort of a 12 hour, 24 hour thing um, before it settled again. And I got back into my rehab and things, but. Man, it's been a slow, slow summer watching the boys grafting and training while I've been kind of in the gym doing, you know, real low level core stability exercises and things like that. Yeah, I mean, there's not much else you can really do, is there? No, that's that. And that, and that was the biggest thing for most people. Discipline means, you know, turning up and training hard every day. For me, over the summer, disciplines mean meant not going shooting, not going chainsaw, not climbing a tree, not lifting something too heavy, yeah. not going to the gym, not going for a run when you shouldn't. Um, and just being disciplined in terms of my rest and my rehabilitation. And, you know, like I say, luckily I've had some really good people around me giving me good, uh, good advice and taking good care of me. And luckily I've managed to stay pretty disciplined on it and, uh, and get on top of it. And I'm basically fit to return to play now. Oh, good. How, um, how many investigations did you need to work out what this was? And where did you find someone who, who actually knew? Cause it sounds so, sounds so like such a niche in injury. I've never heard of anything like it. Yeah, I think I think there's, there are one or two players. That I think uh, I'm right in saying it's quite similar to what Manu Tulangi was suffering with for a long time. Oh, oh uh, right, okay. Has had it. Uh, I think Piers Francis at the club had had it to some extent. Lots of people have had it to varying degrees, and it's often referred to as pubis symphysis. Yeah, which is the muscular scene between your your pelvic bones. Um, but uh, we never really 100% diagnosed what it was. So I had scans, there was some symptoms, there was some inflammation. Um, I'd torn a muscle called the obturator externus, which is a very small stabilizing muscle on the inside of your pelvis and hips. <laughs> um, but we never really nailed down exactly what the symptoms were and what the protocol was, uh, sorry, what the what the uh, injury was, what the diagnosis was and uh, and what the return to play protocol was. So we've kind of just been governed by symptoms. Yeah, we've just been, you know, we've been governed by symptoms. We've been taking it really steady. Uh, we've been careful not to push it too hard because every time I did that in the early days, it flared up. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, and, and hopefully like, I've tolerated a few weeks now, a couple of weeks of full training with the boys. 
mauling, scrummaging, running, just normal change of direction, all that kind of stuff. So um, hopefully I'll play a second team game in the next week or so. Wow. Uh, I mean, it is things like that when you think you boys really do earn your money. Well, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's not like it's not, like I say, it's not without its risks. Um, you know, and all the focus at the minute is on head injuries and things. But, uh, you know, there's plenty of injuries elsewhere. The amount of people that are suffering with ACLs, MCLs, knee injuries, ankle injuries. I mean, you know, a shoulder reconstruction is just run of the mill these days. Yeah. Um, you know, if, if back in the day, if you had a, a major shoulder dislocation or something like that, that was career ending. Um, whereas now it's just run of the mill. Oh, you've dislocated your shoulder. Ken Pesey did his the other weekend. He's in for an operation and uh, no doubt we'll be back in three months and, and back playing. Oh, yeah. I mean, knees used to be end of the world. Now it's kind of, OK, yeah, you've done your knee again. Yeah, MCL, ACL, it's in a it's in a brace, it's a quick operation. I mean, it's still a fairly significant thing, but it's but it is routine. It's run of the mill. You know, just about every player's had one to some extent. Now, I'm going to raise something which you probably will think I'm insane for even saying. Rehab. Do you think rehab helps, or do you think it's there just to keep you mentally like mentally stimulated? No, it absolutely does help. Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends on the injury. Um, there are certain things to some extent, like a broken bone. Um, it just needs the time. It yeah. Needs the time. Well, uh, that might not be strictly true because you need to load a broken bone. You, you have to get a delicate, it's a delicate balance between overloading and loading, but bone, bone reacts to, to loading. So to strengthen a bone, you need to load it. Uh, and, and yeah, rehab definitely helps. You, you've got to go through the protocols and things, but also as much as, as much as healing the injury that you're, you're suffering with, it's making sure that when you return to running and playing and all the other things, that the rest of your body is still in a position to to cope. So say if I say if I break my forearm and I'm going to be out for a number of months, and I'm going to be in a cast for however many weeks. If I just say, well, I can't do anything, I can't play for the next few months, so I'm not going to train, I'm not going to rehab, I'm not going to... Well, once my arm's ready, I then have to get my whole body ready again. Yeah. That makes sense? So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, it's not you, when you, when you return from your arm injury, you're not just returning from your arm injury. Well, you know you've forgotten how to run. Your calves and you know you've got muscle wastage everywhere else. Your ankles and things aren't as stable. You, you know, you're not prepared to change direction and run fast and and take collisions. So one of the things I've been working on a lot with my uh, with my injury is neck strength and things like that. Yeah, because I can do I can do neck harness work and things. And the last thing I want to do, uh, I've also suffered a long time with my Achilles and. and and an ankle ankle trouble. Um, so while my pelvis has been bad, I've been working on all those kind of things. Because the last thing I want to do is return from this pelvis injury and then have not run for months, not trained for months, go on my first run and my Achilles flare up. Um, yeah. or, or go into my first tackle when I return to play and get concussed or have some sort of neck injury because I haven't, I haven't made, made a tackle for six months. Yeah, I was speaking to, oh, I'm trying to think which player it was, the prop. It used to play at Saracens, then went to the London Irish, South African fella. What's his name? Ah, oh. I know who you mean. Duplessis. Duplessis, yeah. Because uh, he, uh, because we have uh, we have a mutual friend, and he's actually a physio by trade. Yeah. And uh, he was talking all about uh, neck strengthening and prehab. And I thought that's quite an interesting concept, that strengthening pot, pot, pots of the body in anticipation for injury. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's um, uh, it's obvious when you think about it. Um, 
you know, the, the prehab was a very fashionable term for a while. Now it's just um, it's, everyone gives it different names. We've talked about it being robustness training. Um, you know, it's all about injury prevention, basically. That's uh, training, yeah. So, cool. you know, and everyone goes in. The, everyone thinks that what we do as rugby players, there's a lot of talk on social media, particularly from journalists and pundits and things like that about how modern rugby players need to work on their skills more and spend less time in the oh gym. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, I, I see this we're all the time. We're not, we're not bodybuilders. We're not powerlifters. We're not in the gym all day doing bench press and arm curls. When we're in the gym, we're doing things like um, dynamic force transfer, plyometrics and jumps. Um, we're doing neck strength and ankle. There's people stood on wobble boards, catching and passing to strengthen their knees and their ankles to prevent injuries. Um you know, you have to be robust enough. You have to be strong enough. If you, if you know, if you've got Achilles tendons, how can you play 80 minutes of, of high intensity rugby when you're a hundred odd kilos? If you've got no calves and ankle stability, yeah. Um, uh, how, how can you tackle double decker buses like Billy Van Apola and Will Skelton <laughs> if if your neck's if you've got a pencil neck? Yeah. Um, you know, your head's going to fall off. So you've got to you've got to strengthen those kind of areas. I do get actually very, very annoyed when I hear like the whole um, gym monkey argument. Players are getting bigger, but I think that's sort of like we are finding better genetic people and there's you know a bigger playing pool now rather than they are doing nothing but working out. I mean, you, I don't, I think... There's an element of that. I would argue that we're not necessarily bigger. I would say, I think I saw an interesting tweet from Dave Flatman the other day that said, um, I think he listed half a dozen or so of his Baff era squad the likes of Grucock, Beatty, um, who else was playing? Duncan Bell himself. Yeah. There was a, there was a handful of them, um, and he was comparing them to the current Bath crop. And there was probably ten kilos difference in all of the players. Is that right? To, to, to the to the older version. Think of the size of Danny Grucock and Beatty. And see, I still and, think of Danny Grucock as like the biggest man on earth. Uh, you know, people like Bayfield, I guess. Although he's a, he is a particular freak. But, <laughs> he's huge. Um, but what I would argue is everyone's more mobile and more dynamic across the board. So, mm. like I say, back in the day, there was individuals that were very mobile and very dynamic. But now it's across the board. There is no, there is no hiding place. There's no individual, um, you know, there's no whipping boy, so to speak. Everybody across the board can is is big and can shift. Yeah. Um, so. I would argue there's championship sides with far bigger players than far more bulk than I guess because it's less regulated. Yeah, the drugs <laughs> testers and things like that. Um, but there's also more time to spend in the gym, but less less focus on the kind of things we're just talking about, like the injury prevention stuff. Mm. That might be a harsh criticism. I've never I've never been in the environment, so I don't know. <clears throat> I don't know firsthand, but that's my kind of interpretation from where I'm where I'm sitting is that. Um, they've got the time to spend in the gym and they spend it on the fun stuff and the bulk. Um, and I'd argue if you stood a championship team next to a premiership team, probably bar Saracens who are particularly big at the minute. Yeah, um, huge. You know, if you stood them next to the Northampton Saints pack, we're not a very big pack. Yeah. If you if you looked at our pack next to, I don't know, I don't, I don't actually know many players, but the Coventry pack, say, yeah. or the... Bedford pack maybe I don't I don't know the individual so I can't I can't speak exactly but I would I would guess they'd be bigger. Yeah, yeah. I mean you are pro- pro- probably right there. Just in just in just in terms of like sh- excuse me, just in terms of like sheer volume. Yeah. So if we picked if we picked a pack of 
any, any back row combination of Heimer Brousseau, Tamar Harrison, myself, Jamie Gibson, um, Mitch Eady, uh, James Haskell's probably one of the, the biggest at the moment. Um, yeah, but I, I actually think he is he is particularly massive. Yeah, he's he, he's probably the anomaly in our back row. Everyone else is barely a hundred kilos. Everyone else hell? is artificially a hundred and five kilos. There's nobody that's a genuine 110 kilos. What weight do you think you'd, you'd be then if you weren't playing rugby? Oh, I'd, it would depend. Um, I always thought as a youngster I'd be heavier because I, would, um, I wouldn't I would have the running volume, but I would probably do more weightlifting. Because um, rugby, rugby for me, playing, um, it's, uh, it's, it, it takes a lot out of you. Um, it's a mm. degenerative thing. It, it's a it's a uh, catabolic thing because of the attrition, because of the rate you're using fuel. You're you're burning muscle basically. You're eating yourself when you're out there on a pitch. Yeah. Um, you know, and the collisions, the 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 rate at which you have to repair, you know, muscle damage and um, just the volume of work you do and everything else. It's very difficult for someone like me to put weight on. Yeah, I mean that was actually quite a famous thing for Steve Borthwick and actually Paul O'Connell too. Yeah, different, um, you know, different people suffer the opposite way. So they put weight on too easily, and if they weren't playing rugby, they'd, uh, you know, they'd, they'd, they'd bloat pretty quickly. Um, but uh, but like to myself and Jamie Gibson and, and even Tamana, and that, we need the we need the amount of weightlifting that we do during the rugby. We need the amount of fuel that we get fed at the club. Um, how how many calories do you think that you go through a day? Um, it varies. If I was being really strict and disciplined, um, I should be in over four and a half thousand. Um, but that is a challenge, and I don't think I get there most days. Um, on a good day, I'd probably be getting close to five thousand. Um, maybe, maybe in and around playing. But um, I'll be surprised if I get there day to day in the week. And, and uh, how? I mean, how do you go about doing that? I mean, obviously it's eating, but are you um, con- condensing things down into shakes or any such thing? Uh, yeah, generally, yeah. So I'll have a good couple of shakes a day. I'll have them in and around my training and my weightlifting at the club. We have them after our big session um, out on the field, and that that's just a case of getting as quick a protein hit and recovery hit as you can post training. So, you know. I'd never advocate replacing food with a shake, mm. if, if at all possible. But, you know, when you're immediately coming off the pitch, sweating and everything else, you just need to get something in as quickly as possible. So, you know, having a shake in those circumstances or sipping a shake whilst you're doing your lift in the gym is uh, is the way I go about it. And then the rest of the time, I try and try and prioritise eating actual food. <laughs> yeah, I, re- I reckon I go through about 5,000 calories a day on a weekend, and if I continued to do that, I'd be a very different shape to what I am now, and not in a good way either. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, got- yeah, that 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 comes um, that comes full circle back to the uh, back to the hunting and the uh, and the wild game element of things as well. That's uh, that's something else. That's another reason why um, I um, I kind of advocate that lifestyle. Uh, now, just going back to the size difference, I mean, I think one of the things which uh, rugby writers particularly hammer because there's an infatuation with super rugby is the difference in sizes or the difference in emphasis between, say, super rugby and in the in the premiership. I mean, they might be wrong, they might be right. But you've got a guy in charge now in Chris Boyd who has built some fantastic teams. Is that is that coming across in the way he's coaching or is he pretty happy with what he's got? Or um. I think 
I don't want to speak for him. Yes. But, I, but my understanding is that he has no intention to make us the Northampton Hurricanes. <laughs> uh, he's basically turned up and thought, um, what's the right strategy, the right game plan, the right rugby philosophy for this group of players? Um, maybe in time he'll try and change the makeup of the squad. I don't know. Maybe when he's because obviously he hasn't done any of the recruitments thus far. Mm. So maybe you know when contracts are up at the end of the year and he's thinking about uh, who he's going to who he's going to sign and recruit in the future. Maybe you might think I need some bigger individuals or I need a, a different style of player. I don't know. Mm. But for now, he's very much said that uh, you know we're going to play to our strengths. And for us, that kind of you know, when you're up against a team like Saracens with the with the size of them at the moment, um, or a Bath pack like we're playing this weekend, um, it's it's really about moving the fight. So rugby is a physical game. At some point, you've got to fight. There's no point. There's no point in trying to avoid that. You've got to be confrontational and physical at some stage. But when you're playing against bigger, heavy packs, the idea is to move them and take the fight elsewhere, so that you know they have to run first and then and then still be as big and strong. I love that saying. I've 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 never actually heard uh, I've never actually heard that that before. Uh, move the fight. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, if you just stand and plant your feet and brawl, the bigger man's always going to win. Um, but if you can uh, if you can keep them on their toes and keep them moving and keep them guessing and then making decisions under fatigue and uh, having to cover fifty meters before they hit the rook, that's uh, that's a different story. Now. I don't want you to give away any game plan for Bath, particularly in case someone is listening. Uh, but how would you go about move, moving the fight? Give, give, give me a couple of scenarios. Oh, there's, there's just elements of deception. Um, there's making, you know, it's, it's always a it's a bluff and a double bluff all the time. It's um, it's perhaps playing off the top early on and playing to the whip to get them get their forwards moving. Um, but ultimately, obviously, you think of your, particularly us at Northampton, we think of our drive, our driving mall as a, as a huge weapon. So you have to, uh, you know, you, you try and sucker punch them, basically. You try and make them think you're going to do one thing and then do the opposite. Uh, you know, without giving any, any specifics away for, for this weekend, that's, that's generally the philosophy. Um, you know, the idea is get them moving early on. If they're bigger and heavier, get them, uh, get them as tired as possible, doing the aerobic stuff that they don't like doing. Mm-hmm. So that you can hurt them with the uh, with the power game when you, when you're a bit uh, well when they're tired. That's awesome. Just out of interest, when you get a new coach, then do do you go through a process of trying to like figure out what he's thinking? Is there a little bit of like like guessing and second guessing as to what as to what this guy might uh, might be wanting? Um, I've not had to go through it very often, to be honest. Um, no, had, I guess uh, I haven't. I worked with Mike Ruddock over in uh, in my Worcester days um, for the duration of my time there. Um, came to Northampton and I've worked with Jim and Dorian for you know the last eight years or so. Uh, so this is the first time that within a within a regime I've had to do that. Other, other than I guess with England rugby, um, I wasn't really thinking of England rugby, but. Um, for me personally, at the stage of my career and everything else now, and um, I, I don't try and second guess. Chris Boyd has come in and been very open, very, very honest with what what his expectations are. Um, they've not been overly complex. Um, he's been straight talking, um, so he's made it fairly, fairly obvious for everybody right from the, right from the get go. Um, it's a clean slate for everybody. That was clear. Uh, and he and he said that there'll be opportunities for everybody. You know, it's a long season and a big squad, and we need to use all of our resources. So, 
for, for me personally, it's always just been about getting fit, uh, getting fit, getting myself back out there on the pitch so that I can I can prove a point and prove myself all over again. Yeah. But in a good way, that's not me. That's not me feeling like I've been wronged and I've got a point to prove. That's just me saying, you know, we've got a new regime and a fresh start and I want to be a part of it. I guess there must be, even if it's subconsciously, um, a willingness to try and imp- uh, impress the new guy. Yeah, it's, it's exciting though. Um and it's, and it's a challenge that I've kind of always relished. And the, you know, for me personally, I can't speak for everybody, but the last thing I would want to be considered is, you know, somebody that's sitting back and resting on his reputation or thinks that um, his number of caps for a for club or country are, are going to talk for him. Um, you know, I want I want the likes of Chris to turn up and think, um, you know, I know exactly why he's got that many caps because I can see what he does day to day. And, uh, you know, you want you want to you want to earn the respect of the guys around you, players and coaches. Um, so that, that doesn't change. I just uh, You just keep doing that. You never want to relax and think you've got credit in the bank of anybody. Now, just going back a little bit in your career, and surely this must have been one of your favourite games, but it was the semi-final against Leicester. I can't, I can't remember if you scored just before half-time or just towards the end. But no, that, end, yeah. yeah, I just remember that right before the end of the play. Yeah, it was, it was the it was the final minutes of the game. Yeah, I think that is actually one of the best tries in Premiership playoff history. I think that's one of the great, and it made it even better as well because I was at a sevens tournament at, at the time. It's one of those fancy business ones where at the end everyone go, goes for a dinner, but they had four. But they had four speakers, and all the speakers were ex Leicester, which made it even better. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, we'd. Um... Well, obviously, we've got the East Midlands derby, so that that ramps up the occasion in itself. Um, with it being a semi-final, I think we'd lost to them earlier in the year, so there was a bit of edge there. There's always controversy when we play Leicester. I'd, I'd, no one means to. I don't think anyone goes into the game, um, you know, with any any intention of controversy. But there's always a refereeing decision, a, a red or yellow card, or both. Um, you know, there's always a, a try disallowed or or whatever. Some controversy around some some points being scored and. It's it's just one of the it just happens. It's just it's happened every time I've played against them. So um, yes, yeah, it's, it's an amazing occasion. I think we had Celesi Mafu carded that day. That's right. Yeah. So, did, did he get red? Then yeah, he threw a punch and uh, hit Tom Youngs and. That's, that's big, right. So, punch. Tom took it like a champ, to be fair. So I always get these two confused because there was that one which is quite infamous, and there's also the Ashton yeah. Manu one, which is also quite infamous. That was on another planet <laughs> if that happened today I don't think I think Manu would be in prison I, don't know if they, uh, <laughs> I think they'd probably get the UN involved the heaviest punches there's a still image of Manu with both his feet off the floor connecting with the biggest punch and Chris Ashton's face deform like it's been <laughs> like uh, like it's melted it's absolutely I wasn't playing that game I think I was injured that day I was I got red carded against Leicester once did um, you Where, which one was that it was also Chris Ashton that, that provoked that one. It was um, it was the time that Chris Ashton pulled Alessana Tuohangi's hair, of course or he did. allegedly. Um, uh, it, he made a tackle on the touchline, um, and then he, he I, I think Chris's argument would be he tried to grab him by the shirt and drag him off, but I think he got hold of his hair, and it, um, Alessana wasn't too happy about it, so he charged him into the boards on the side of the pitch. This is ringing a bell now. I don't think Alessandra threw a punch, but he did charge Ashton into the side of the pitch quite hard. Um, Courtney Laws tried to go and split them up, and then I think Horatio Aguja went in and threw a punch. 
So once I saw him throw a punch, I just thought all bets are off now. We're all punches. Um, <laughs> I think it was Jordan Murphy, actually, that threw about 15 punches over the top at me. I do. <sighs> uh, and then in the end, the referee, uh, along with the touch judge on the far side, how he, how he made a call, I've got no idea, but he managed to see it from 50 metres to 70 yards away. Um, and they said uh, myself and Alessana were the instigators or the, the bi- biggest culprits, one from each team's going, so it's us. So they sent off a seven and a winger, which... <laughs> now, is this the days before TMO? Oh, I can't must remember. Must be, must it? Must have been. Be- well, it certainly wasn't TMO as we know it now. Um, there may have been some sort of video review, I can't remember. I don't think there was. I think it just came straight from the touch judge on the far side. Yeah, that, that sounds right because it sounds like a sort of natural, natural referee justice. Where, right, one, one from each goes, and we'll pick them at random. I don't know what to do, so I panic and just send one from each side. Yeah, I exactly. Think right. It was also, it was Wayne Barnes again. I like Wayne. Like I'm not criticising Wayne. Wayne's but, brilliant. But he had been in charge the year before as well when Ashton had thrown that uh, when uh, Manu had thrown that punch at Ashton. Hang on a minute. Is there not another one as well? Didn't Dylan Hartley get? Actually, he's got two reds yeah. against Leicester, hasn't he? Well, at least one. He's got one in the uh, final. Yep, yeah, two, yeah. <laughs> and then the other one on Tom Young's or Ben Young's. Uh, no, it was uh, Matt Smith. It was Matt Smith that he the elbow. Yeah, it wasn't Young's. It was Smith. I'm sure it was Young's. Yeah, yeah. He, uh, by the dead ball line or something, and he swings. Yeah. The, he's he's not looking what like what he's doing. We won that day, so we got Dylan sent off in the first half and still won. I think. Unbelievable, isn't it? Yeah. I, I don't honestly know, right? So, you know, but there's not many games where there's been consecutive red cards and yellow cards like that. Not many um, derbies or encounters where that's the case. Do you know what? Um, I've not even thought about that. I watch so much, so, so much rugby, and like just off the, off the, off the top of my head, uh, in talking to you, we've got like four, like four red cards. I've never even noticed the pattern. Yeah, and, and another thing that builds the rivalry is that it's not necessarily the case at the moment, but um, you know, in uh, over the last few years, with there's been. Uh, head-to-head rivalries kind of across the team. Um, you know, Youngs and, and Dylan vying for the England yeah. hooker spot. Dixon and uh, and Ben Youngs vying for the scrum half spot. Um, there's been the likes of Lewis Deacon in the second row with Courtney Laws and uh, myself and Tom Croft uh, and Jamie Gibson, actually, head-to-head more recently uh, when he was oh, during yeah. his time at Leicester. Do, do you know the guy who I thought was up, uh, was absolutely brilliant? I, you know, take this uh, how it... How, uh, how it's meant maybe not the t- most technically gifted player but I just loved how he played uh, and that was Dixon Lee Dixon yeah thought, thought, oh, yeah, he, was thought he was awesome yeah, unbelievably fit um, you know never shut up it's just his attitude uh, yeah he was he was kind of renowned for just getting the ball away as quickly as possible um, so where, whereas other scrum halves perhaps got some more of the individual plaudits for you know the Danny Cares of Ben Youngs for the show and go and for making individual breaks and running with the ball um, you know, we always uh, we always valued Lee Dixon for just moving the ball as quickly as possible. He was dead fit. He got to the rooks quickly. He didn't diver around. He just shipped the ball, and it just kept us on the front foot. Yeah, uh, kept the ball in motion. And that was probably his biggest strength. And he just—I I mean, in my mind, tell me if I'm wrong, but I just thought he always—he always sort of set the tone. Oh yeah, he was—he uh, was a competitor for for sure. Um, and like I say, really high energy, uh, never shut up, always barking orders like a, any good nine nine does um you know he was always uh, not just on the pitch on game day but you know in training and everything else he captained the side obviously a couple of years ago um 
and the uh, you know his winning fitness tests and things like that. He was a hell of a runner. So yeah. Now I'm sure there was meant to be a question he about contact. He like he for for a little scrum half, he wasn't scared of tackling. No, he, t- he tackled like a piece of chewing gum though. Basically, <laughs> got he gets run over. I, I keep talking like he's not like he's not around anymore. He's like he's dead. <laughs> yeah, he's playing for Bedford and uh, and playing well down there. And I think is he's he, going to. Is he a teacher? Yeah, he's um, he's doing his teaching. He's um, he's I think he's player coach down at Bedford at the minute. Uh, did did Stephen Myler go to Bedford as well? Why well, I made no, that up. Myler's gone to London Irish. Ah, right, right. I don't know why I thought he was going to Bedford. Just oh, about well. everyone went to Ealing. <laughs> everyone went to Ealing Trail Finders. Yeah, well, they've got some cash, and I tell you what, if if they if they make the Premiership next year, they won't make the Premiership because I think the Premiership will probably say mm, maybe not, lads. But if they do, there's going to be some absolute political fireworks, and I can't wait for it personally. Yeah, I'm not up to speed to be honest. I can't comment, but um, yeah, best, they're definitely spending best, some money. Yeah, best if you don't com- uh, best if you don't comment on that one. <laughs> uh, yeah, there was maybe a question in there somewhere about the semi final, but I, I can't remember what it was. So I'll, I'll just set, set, set off for the chat. You were asking me if it was my favourite game. Oh yeah, um, it's up there. It's definitely up there just because of the occasion. I mean. The try, obviously, uh, I don't score many tries, so I remember them. Um, but uh, it was more just the occasion, and it was also we actually hadn't had the best season that year. The following season, we were better across the board, but that season in 2014, we'd we'd had uh, a bit of a slow start. We'd struggled, and uh, we were just coming good. And the the last sort of six weeks of the season, uh, we really built nicely. Um, you know, we uh, we won that game against Leicester. We won Bath in the, against Bath in the final of the European Cup the following week, and then we obviously won the Premiership final against Saris that went a hundred minutes, and it was just an epic month of rugby for us. Yeah, uh, it, it yeah, it was. It's probably the best month of rugby I've been a part of in terms of atmosphere and and achievement and occasion. It's just wicked. So, which which incarnation of 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 the various Northampton teams that you've been involved with, would you say is the best? Or is it even a Northampton team? Maybe it's a Worcester team. Oh, that's, that's so hard to, to judge, really, because, like I say, the game changes. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I I loved my early days at Worcester, and, you know, um, it was a huge learning curve for me getting out there on the first team, playing adult rugby, playing man, man's rugby, uh, playing alongside the likes of Pat Sanderson, um, you know, I love that, um, but then I guess my ambition kind of outgrew uh, the, the teams a little bit um, with where we were in the league and everything else, uh, and the opportunity came, and being here at Northampton in the early days with the likes of Dylan, Sawani Tongawir, Majati, Courtney, uh, James Downey, Dowson, Roger Wilson, that kind of era, Lee Dixon, as we spoke about, yeah. Ashton Foden, you know, that, that, was, uh, that was a hell of a team to be a part of. Um, were you involved with England under-20s with those boys? Or were you a no, bit younger than them? I didn't play under-20s, no. Did you not? I bypassed all of that and just went straight to... <laughs> it... I, played, I played the Saxons. I played the Saxons. Uh, were you... Was that because you were in New Zealand at, at the time? Or you, you just, no, you just not found your feet? because I wasn't eligible. If I think if I'd have had a sniff of playing in the... It's a, a bit of a complicated story, but I basically... Um, I played England clubs at under-18s. Yeah. Um and then the following year, uh, I wasn't eligible for schoolboys um, because of my birth date. The schoolboy rugby starts as of January the 1st, for some reason, rather than the school year. Right, I didn't know that. Which didn't, which didn't make any sense. Um, 
So I went from being an under 18 in clubs to being an under 21 at schoolboy under the new age brackets, which started in terms of January rather than September because I'm November born. Yeah. Then the following year, I had a broken leg and wasn't eligible uh, or wasn't available for selection through injury. And then the year I would have been available and probably in contention because I was, you know, playing well and, and at, at an academy and everything else. Um, uh, they changed it from 21s to 20s and I missed out by a couple of months again. Oh, nightmare. Um, so it used to be 21s, didn't it? And they changed it to 20s that year. So yeah, there's no skin off my nose, really. I um, I just chose a different path. And that's when I went to New Zealand um, and did some, did some things a little bit differently and uh, came back and played first team. And then after a you know, a couple of years in, in Worcester's first team, got selected for the Saxons and then playing for um, playing for Northampton and being up at the top end of the league and, and playing well in a winning team. Mm. That- there, was a couple of, there was a couple of injuries. Um, my initial selection for England was on the back of Lewis Moody and Tom Croft being injured. Ah. Now, you did actually go on to captain England. Did, did, did yeah, you- uh, yeah. Um, I have captained England, but... Um, you know, Chris Robshaw and, and Dylan have been the long-term captains, obviously. But uh, we went to Argentina in 2013 and I captained the side there. I also captained them in a warm-up game in, at the World Cup. Uh, uh, now, you've captained England, uh, although, you know, as you mentioned, they're not, not in a long-term capacity. You have captained your club in, uh, in the full-time capacity. Um, what, what does it mean to be a captain and what do you strive to do? Um, I don't think it's um, the same as so. So, match day captain is very different to club captain. Okay. If you're, if you're captain on game day, um, you lead the boys out. You obviously liaise with the ref, and you want to build a good relationship with him so that you know you're on good terms, and he will listen to you if you if you want to raise a point. Um, you obviously need the respect of of, of your teammates, but. Um, Rarely are you going to say anything so significant out there on the pitch that the team go from not playing well to playing well. Mm. Um, you know, this, other than you know, just simple composure and having. Uh, I guess one of the main roles of a captain in the past would be whether you go for the corner, the post, or the scrum, or the lineup, whatever in the, in a penalty situation. Mm-hmm. But modern modern teams, uh, modern rugby, generally that call comes from the sideline because everyone's mic'd up. You've got water boys, you've got coaches on the sideline. They've all got earpieces in. They've all, you know, they've got the tee on the sideline. If they want to go for goal, they'll just run the tee on, and then you've got no choice. Um, so rarely are you, as a captain, making those decisions. I didn't realize that. Yeah, well, the captain's main role is uh, a club captain's main role is to basically. Um, and manage the day-to-day stuff. Sorry to interrupt, Tom. Just going back to that. Did you, did you say if uh, if the call was to kick the points, the water boy would would run on the tee, and that and that would be that. Yeah, as soon as the tee's on the pitch, there's nothing you can do about it. Is that right? Yeah, the, the tee being on the pitch is a decision to kick for goal. And yeah. is is that the same within with international too, or is that yeah. a Northampton thing? No, no, it's not a Northampton thing. It's um, it's it's just the rules. As soon as the tee's on the pitch. That's, that's the decision to go for goal made. I never knew that. And are they waiting for you to beckon them on, or you know, do you know, does someone just push? That's, that's between the coaches and the captain. And you know, some coaches will say the captain's on the pitch; he has a feel for the game. It's up to him to make that decision, and we trust him to do so. Yeah. Uh, 
or we empower him to do so and we obviously coach him with what our theory is in various circumstances uh, but you okay. can't cover everything um or the coaches just say no we've got an objective view from up in the stand take the emotion and the uh, and everything else out of it we'll decide i see the t comes on that's it so northampton one way and england another and during my time with Northampton as captain, it was the coaches that made the decisions. Yeah, uh, and, Eng- and England, uh, you know, you would you would call you you it would be down to you and you'd been, call on the team. Controversy, hasn't there? Do you remember when Owen and um, and Chris at the World Cup were had had some uncertainty as to what they were going to do? Yes, it does ring a bell. Yeah, so um, you know, it's all it's, maybe it changes under in under different coaches in different eras. Maybe a single coach changes his mind from time to time, and uh, one week, and sometimes it's not discussed, and then that's when the uh, that's when the controversy arises, really, Goodness. or the or the hesitation and indecision, because a captain might be thinking, pointing to the corner, thinking, you know, especially someone like Dylan, who's who's played that way in the past and's always had a big dominant Northampton pack around him, uh, you know, will stand tall and puff his chest out and say, "Put it in the corner, we're going over," um, but then you turn around and the tee's already on the pitch, and you've got no choice, so. Oh, that's absolutely fascinating. I I never knew that. I always I always assumed that every captain was calling was calling the shots on the field. Not necessarily. Uh, in some cases, yeah, uh, and back in the day, yeah, but um, more recently, less likely. That's a real interesting potential flashpoint there between captain and coach. If you're if you're a hooker, yeah, uh, and you're captain in a team, and you've uh, just been given a penalty so many meters out, and you say, "I want the scrum." Um, you know, you're, you're really saying, making a big statement of intent there that you feel dominant and you're backing yourself and you want the scrum and you as a hooker would have a good feel for that. Yeah. Um, whereas now, if you you might be trying to do that, whereas the uh, the coaches are thinking, no, we need the three points. And I'm not saying right or wrong, you know. You could, you could make a very strong argument to say, well, the coach is up in the stand with that objectivity, with the benefit of replays, with... Um, you know, a bit more composure and out of the heat of the fire a little bit could make a, a better, more logical decision. Whereas, you know, a bullish captain, um, ego-driven, might just be thinking, "Oh, I want to push him over, or I want to go in the corner." Or I tell you what, it's rather deflating if you know you are about to go for the scrum and then someone runs on, runs on with the tee. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've had it happen. I've had it happen to me, and I've had it happen to. Uh, uh, you know, captains I'm playing alongside as well. So, uh, and I guess it's just a maturity thing then of saying, "Well, look, they know best. That's why they get paid." Well, yeah. Was, I mean, you you just got to know who's making the decision. As long as you know who's making the decision, you you're okay. The worst thing is to feel like it's your decision and your responsibility, and then somebody basically undermine it by or go over the top of you and make the decision for you when you were under the impression it was your job. Um, I, honestly, I've been on the pitch and been unaware of the score at times. <laughs> so, like, it, it, you have to have very good awareness if you're going to captain the side and and take on that responsibility and be a very high octane attritional um, blood and thunder player because you've got your head in the fire the whole time and you lift it up and you've got to make a nice cold decision as to whether you know you do one or the other. Yeah, I mean, I've got to say, I've I've must have played God knows how many games of rugby now. I never know what the score is. I know if they've scored three tries and I've scored four. Uh, you, but you, I don't know what the overall score is. It's got to be good when it comes to, uh, and, and you, I've been on the pitch and not known how many tries we've scored. So um, you know, when you're talking about bonus point tries, when you're talking about um, 
you know, you, you could also have caters at a World Cup in a, in a pool group or, or even in, a, in the league at domestic level, not know towards the end of the season how many points you need, whether the opposition are going to, uh, whether it makes a difference, whether they get a bonus point or not. Um, you know, all that kind of stuff. You've got to have all that in the back of your mind and be well prepared on that. Yeah. I mean, you're a full-time rugby player, so, uh, you know, if you're switched on doing your homework, you, sh- you should be up to speed. Um but it's difficult, difficult sometimes making those decisions in the heat of battle. Well, well people uh, do it very differently. Um, so you you have some sometimes you have a thinker as a captain, uh, and sometimes you have a talisman, a physical talisman as a captain. You know, so you could make a very strong case for making Courtney Law's captain because he'll strike the fear of God into the opponents. His team will all look, literally look up to him. Um, you know, and uh, and he'll always lead from the front. He'll always play well. Um, but he he doesn't he doesn't think and live and breathe culture and rugby the way that someone like Dylan perhaps does or mm. Owen Farrell perhaps does. Yeah, you know Courtney wants to separate himself from rugby, relax, and just do what he does, which is smash people. Yeah. There are an awful lot of players I find that love playing rugby but don't necessarily love rugby. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, that's a fair assessment. Yeah. And, um, you know, Courtney, uh, we have never questioned whether Courtney's going to turn up on match day. You know, he's always going to turn up. He's always going to give it his all. He's always going to be physical. He's always going to put his body on the line for his mates. And that's why you trust him. And that's why you um, could make a very strong case for making him captain. And, and people would follow him, no doubt. I certainly would. Well, um, it's but like... then club captain's a bit different because you have to be actively engaging with the team manager, with the coaches, with strategy, with, you know... Uh, protocols you know you've got to care whether you're going to wear your suits after the game or your polo shirt you've got to care whether you're going to travel and what food you're going to have and everything else and um you can't just be on your ipad yeah yeah um go going back to the to the club captaincy role of um obviously one of the things that you've got to do quite a lot of is is media do do, do you quite enjoy that side of it no (laughs) no not particularly um I don't know. It's. Um, I wouldn't say I enjoy it. Why is that then? Because it's a minefield. Um, it's a minefield to navigate, and I'm never quite sure the best the best approach. My approach over the years has been honesty um, to as big a degree as I can manage without being without throwing anybody under the bus. Yeah. Um, you know, so, so there's different degrees of honesty. Um, but I've always felt like if we lose um, as a captain or as the guy that's been put up for media, there's no point sugarcoating it. If it was if it was a poor performance, you got to put your hand up and accept that and, and take responsibility on behalf of the team and uh, accepting responsibility and accepting that it wasn't good enough isn't to be negative. It's uh, I, I I don't consider myself a you know a spin doctor. I don't want to <laughs> yeah not Alistair Campbell. No, I don't. I don't want to be spinning it into something that it's not. Um, I don't want to be trying to put a positive. I just want to tell it like it is, um, and it's and it's difficult to navigate that without accidentally throwing somebody under the bus or it reflecting badly on somebody unduly that you didn't mean it to. You just you know your approach is this is what these are the problems as I see them, and this is how we're going to get better. But in doing so, you might be saying that oh, I 
so and so hadn't missed that tackle, would have been all right. Or if uh, you know we weren't well enough prepared, maybe the coach it might reflect badly on the coaches or whatever it might be. Yeah, and also the the other thing you got to remember as well is you probably got like fifteen seconds to say something, which might be condensed into five seconds. You know, wedged in between. Yeah, well, no, the worst thing is a headline. News and the headline is the worst thing because you it doesn't have to be a quote. It's rarely in quotation marks. Yeah. Or if it is, it's cherry picked out of a, a wider statement. Um, so you say something with balance, and I often almost play devil's advocate to myself. So I say the two extremes, um, just like we were talking then about captaincy, how sometimes it's the coach's responsibility and sometimes it's the captain's responsibility. Well, I bet you can go back and, and cherry pick a, a sentence out of that of me saying it's the captain's responsibility or <laughs> yeah. it should be the coach's responsibility. And if you put that on as a headline, it would be provocative or it would be uh, sensationalism. Um, it wouldn't take into account the fact that I said, I actually said it could be this and it could be that. Um, and they're the two different ways of doing it. Um, and, and I've run into all sorts of trouble with that in the past where headlines have have not reflected well. Um, and unfortunately, in uh, in the kind of clickbait media world we live in today, um, people don't even read the article and they certainly don't understand how articles are written and, and edited. So they don't understand that the tone of the article from the from the journalist's point of view may not reflect what you actually said. If I read an article these days, all I read is the quotes. All I read is the stuff that's in quotation marks. Um, I don't really care what the journalist thinks or writes. I don't really care anything else. I try and ascertain what's being said by what the player's actually been quoted as saying. That's and even then, even then, it's not necessarily... True. Yeah, I mean, some rugby journalism is absolutely exceptional. I mean, there is, there are some guys out there breaking down games in detail, which I could never, oh, never ever no do. Count. And they're passionate; they love it. Like they live and breathe it. Some of the guys are, are unbelievable, and they do just love it. Um, but oh, I've been burnt in the past for my willingness to speak. So I don't tend to dodge questions. Mm-hmm. If somebody asks me a direct question, I try my best to give a direct answer. Um, to my downfall on a, on a number of occasions. So. Yeah, I think you just got to remember that they are trying to write news. Really, they've got to find something newsworthy in that you know thirty seconds or, whatever it is. or, uh, or get clicks. Yeah. Um, and actually, I don't blame like this. I'm, not, I'm still not sure where I stand on this. Um, so the journalists will always argue that it wasn't me that wrote the headline; it was the editor. I had no control, yeah, or nonsense. I wrote I wrote this piece and they've spun it and and revamped it, and this is how it came out. But it was the editor that did that. And there's two ways of looking at that. One is to feel sorry for the journalist and say, you know, that's you're doing your best, and that that's tough. And I don't know how I would do it differently. And the other is to say, well, it's your name on the bottom of the article, um, and you're the one that has to come face to face with me and ask me for input next time um it's your responsibility to reflect what i was said otherwise i don't trust you anymore yeah yeah i mean not not to get too media-ish here but i think that's exactly why um podcasts and long-form conversations are really growing in popularity because you can actually get to the meaning of what's trying to be said i, I love them i love podcasts um i um I haven't done many. This is, I think this is the second. The last one I did was Ooh. an NFL one. I don't know. I was going to say, <laughs> uh, what was your first one then? Um, it, it was a local guy that uh, lives in the village that runs one uh, based on NFL, and it was basically a comparison between um, rugby and NFL and where we can draw similarities and where they where they differ. Uh, and I'm not up to speed on NFL well enough to really do that. I just sort of spoke on behalf of rugby, and they, they deconstructed it. Ah, right, yeah. I, I mentioned something similar to Christian Day, and he very, very quickly... And forcefully 
told me that they are completely different and uh, that we should um, not consider the two as a as like. Pick, but uh, how much real merit it warrants, I don't know. I think they're completely. Di- I'm actually in the company. They are completely different. Yeah. I mean, there are some people that can cross over, but generally speaking, it's but, just. But it's it's interesting to talk about the differences, if not the similarities. So. Um... Yeah, it kind of worked on the day. It was it was worth doing, but um, it was more of a bit of fun than anything else. Well, I, I, do you know? I was lucky enough to interview Hayden Smith. Do you remember him? Yep. yep. He he was the guy. I mean, massive bloke. <laughs> oh, I, I, actually, and and I've done uh, Chris Christian Scott Scotland Williamson too, and yep. I think what they have achieved is just so monumentally cool. It's it's mind blowing how hard it is even to get in the uniform. Yeah, I, I don't follow it closely enough, but I have just um, from a distance witnessed um, that Christian's doing well over there. Um, played against him, um, hell of an athlete. So, yeah, he's uh, brilliant, isn't he? Well, talking of brilliant, you've been an absolutely marvellous guest. Um, honestly, I've got so many more questions for you, but what we've done now, like an hour and 40. We'll Where... have to have a follow-up another day. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Where can we find all of your cool stuff on social media? Um, I'm on Instagram and Twitter. Um, my Twitter is Tomwood678, and that is predominantly rugby focus, um, rugby and charitable stuff and that kind of thing. Um, uh, although this last week it's been quite quite a lot of interactions on this uh, <laughs> post that we were talking about earlier. Um, but uh, Instagram is where most of my extracurricular activity goes: woodworking, chainsawing, shooting. Um, just the odd rugby post, but not not as much. Um, so uh, yeah, what is that? That's wood by name, wood by nature. Wood by name, wood by nature, and on Twitter, Twitter's Tomwood six seven eight. Tom, oh sorry, Tomwood six seven eight on uh, yeah. on Twitter. Fantastic, Tom. Thank you so thank you so much, and I really look forward to seeing you returning to play sooner rather than later. Planning for your next trip. Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.